Appalachia, the word that evokes a whole passel of reactions. Everything from the beauty of a mountaintop to trailer parks, drugs, and about everything in between. The Appalachian Mountains are indeed the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet into the air. They stretch from eastern Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The folks who live in these mountains have faced an unending number of tragic and just plain odd happenings that cry out for the telling. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and I was born and raised in these very mountains by a family who themselves were born, raised, and lived for generations in the heart of the Appalachian Mountains. Come with me and we'll take a look at some of the unending stories that come from within my beloved mountains. And we'll look through the eyes of an old Appalachian at some outside the area as well. Welcome to Season 4 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Howdy, my good friends. I hope all is well with you today. Thank you so much for swinging by. Sometimes these mountains seem to just plain be the place where I think that if something's going to happen, it's going to happen right here. Sure enough, the more I look at things, the dadgum more of it I find. Like our story today, it's another one that led me down to the creek to pull my hat out. Right when you think it's all over with but the crying, well, think again. That's about the time it's just getting fired up. For us Appalachians, well, well you know, that uh, it's uh, we're used to things uh, being about a half bubble off a of plum anyway, but uh, some things I still find surprising. So come on in, take your shoes off, set a spell while I tell you one from the northern Appalachian Mountains. Oh, well, some folks don't think the state of Maine, yeah, just think of it as being in the Appalachian Mountains. I'm here to tell you that the whole state's an Appalachian Mountain, sticking right up out of the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, pretty much. Now, you know that I've said that, our story's going to start in Arlington, New Jersey, and you'll pretty soon see why I mentioned Maine to start with. Now, it all started on a cold morning on October the 16th, 1937, when two patrolmen, stopped uh, to make a routine check on a car parked off the side of the road in Arlington, New Jersey. Now, they found a young man named Paul Dwyer sitting behind the steering wheel. Now, Paul was sleeping when the officers woke him up to see what he was, if he was all right, you know, and what he was doing there. They realized pretty quick something wasn't quite right. Paul was shaking like a leaf and sweating bullets on top of that. Now, if anything in the world gets the police interested in you, that usually does the trick even today. That aside from having out-of-state plates, which in this case were issued in Maine, and in fact were issued to a man named Dr. James Littlefield. Now, being that the Brady gang had just had a big shootout with police in Bangor just hours earlier, and police nationwide had a be on the lookouts issued for Maine cars, just in case any of the Brady gang, who we'll talk about in another episode, had given them a slip. They decided to. It might be a good idea to pull Paul, who was by now looking about as uncomfortable as a bare-toed chicken on a hot plate, out of the car and give it a in him a once-over. 
know, back in 1937, the probable cause for doing something like that was a whole lot looser than it is today. Now, not to say that uh, this wouldn't be probable cause enough today, for sure. It sure would be in, if, if and I was the police in that position. So while Paul was standing in front of the police car, shaking and twitching like he'd just finished hitting a Chinese pipe, the police went about looking through the car, which was piled full of clothes, uh, women's clothes, which I expect was another big red flag. One of the officers got the idea to pop the trunk and have a look before trying to pick through all them clothes. Folks, we got to remember back then, a feller could be looked upon as outright weirdo if he went pilfering through women's clothes, especially if her underclothes were there for no reason at all. When they did walk around and open the trunk, there laid the reason the young man, Paul Dwyer, was fixing to have a stroke. There was a dead man stuffed in there. With that, the cuffs were applied to Paul, and he was stuffed in the backseat of the police car as they called the coroner. Then the officers, now with a real good reason, started pilfering through the women's clothes inside the car because you know, why would these women's clothes be in a car with two men, one of which was curled up in the trunk with a belt wrapped around his neck dead? It didn't take long to figure out why the clothes were there. They were there because they belonged to the dead woman they found buried under them. Needless to say, it ain't looking good for 17-year-old Paul Dwyer. Now, so, from the police point of view, A plus B pretty much equals C. What with A being Paul driving a car load of dead bodies across the state line, and B, that being that there were indeed two dead bodies in the car to start with, that must lead to C. Paul had to have done it. Now, once the coroner got there and took charge of the scene... Paul got his ride down to the station where he needed to do some planing. Now, that was back uh, before Miranda, of course, and they did not read him his rights. They just started asking him questions, and he answered them. Of course, as we all know, it would be held against him in the court of law. Now, Paul explained that back in Paris Hill, Maine, where he'd come from, he'd called the man in the trunk, who was identified as Dr. James Littlefield, to come over to his house and give him an exam before he thought, uh, because he thought that he was, or maybe have contracted an STD of some kind. The good doctor showed up, and while doing his exam on Paul, he called Paul's girlfriend a hoe. So Paul got all red, clubbed Doc over the head with the nearest thing he could find, which he couldn't remember what it was now, but it, then he commenced to choking the life out of him with his bare hands. Once the good Dr. Littlefield stopped twitching, he went to try to find something to stuff him <clears throat> stuff him in to get rid of him. And he came back in the room, and lo and behold, Doc was sitting up, and he wasn't dead after all. So Paul pounced on him for round two, and this time used his belt to finish him off. Then drug him out, using the belt around his neck, mind you, and stuffed him in the trunk of his own car and slammed the lid. The police thought that explanation fit with what they knew so far, but they wanted to know if he was, in fact, so mad at the doctor that he had to run over to the house and kill his wife, too, because the woman was identified uh, as Lydia Littlefield, the doctor's wife, and as the other body in the car, that was. And Paul did some more explaining. He said that he wasn't mad at anybody by then, but he got to thinking that sooner or later... Uh, Ms. Littlefield would go 
out looking for a dock little field and might cause a problem. So he cruised on over to Littlefield residence and told Miss Littlefield that the good doctor had been involved in a motor vehicle accident where he killed two people and was now on the run from the law. For some reason, most likely shocked, the poor woman packed her clothes and went with Paul to supposedly meet the good doctor in his hidey hole. Now they drove around for three days before Miss Littlefield finally had it and said, I'm leaving and I'm a calling the law. When she turned to get out of the car, Paul grabbed her by the neck and squeezed the life out of her, too. Then Pop propped her up in the back seat like she was sleeping and just took off driving again. He was stopped for speeding somewhere along the route, but since he was a professional driver, driving the supposedly sleeping Miss Littlefield to meet Dr. Littlefield, the police cut him a break and gave him a warning. And that's when he drove out of sight, pulled over and threw her on the floorboard and piled all the clothes on top of her. He continued to Arlington, New Jersey, before he finally had to finally stop and try to take a nap. And that's when the police slid in on him like a hawk of death and took him down. Turns out that the autopsies of both victims pretty well matched what Paul told them. Well, except for one thing. Dr. Litterfield had, uh, well, for lack of a better term, he had had his manhood and his man bag sliced up with a whittling knife. Now, something that... Paul, well, he apparently didn't know about or wasn't aware of, had no explanation for. And it really didn't make a whole lot of sense that a 17-year-old boy with a chauffeur's license and no criminal record whatsoever would pull a stunt like this, but police figured that it had to be true because confession that Paul gave them just matched up nearly perfect with the evidence. They went on to find out that Doc Littlefield had a morphine addiction, which Indeed, could have made him cogity enough to call Paul's girlfriend, Barbara Carroll, a hoe, which is what started the whole thing to start with. Now, Barbara was the daughter of Deputy Sheriff Francis Frank Carroll. You ain't heard nothing yet, folks. Stick around. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. So, folks, on to trial it all went. Paul pleaded not guilty, but after two days of the trial, he suddenly changed his plea to guilty. The judge sentenced him to life in prison. But by then, the public and media, well, they started having plenty of doubt. The motive for the murder seemed pretty slim, and Paul didn't look, uh, talk, or act like any kind of killer any, to anybody, including those prosecuting him felt more like Paul was protecting the real killer, but all they could do was go with what they had, and by golly, they had plenty. After a spell in the pokey, uh, Paul must have figured it wasn't all it cracked up to be or something because he took up a pen and piece of paper and wrote a whole letter of another version of what happened to Doc and Lydia Littlefield, and what Paul now said was the true version. Dr. Littlefield hadn't come to the Dwyer home to treat Paul. He'd actually come there to examine Paul's girlfriend, Barbara, who feared she'd gotten pregnant. Barbara told the doctor that her own father, the aforementioned Deputy Frank Carroll, might have impregnated her. Now, Barbara had told Paul about what her dad had been up to, and the two called the doctor to help. Dr. Littlefield confronted Deputy Carroll, and the deputy promptly pounced on and killed the doctor 
and bullied Paul into helping with the getaway. Now, Deputy Carroll then killed Lydia just to keep her quiet and sent Paul on his drive of doom. Paul had changed his plea to guilty because Deputy Carroll had threatened to have him killed if he didn't. Now, folks, this is a perfect example of what police call lizard brain. Killers get all jacked up with adrenaline and can only think within the moment. There wasn't one bit of thought put into somebody might just come looking for Ms. Littlefield, too, just as soon as they'd come looking for Doc. But police didn't think that Paul's new account held a drop more water than the old one, but the story rang true with one person, and that was Deputy Carroll's boss, the sheriff of Oxford County. Now, he immediately ran over, pounced on, and arrested Deputy Carroll on the spot for incest and fired up an investigation into the murder. Oh, and he fired Deputy Carroll before he left. Deputy Carroll was informed of that when they got there. It seems that uh, the good Deputy Carroll had a reputation for just that kind of a thing, and the sheriff wasn't about to let it go. The now Mr. Carroll, of course, denied the incest allegation, but didn't do it in court. His lawyers told him that if he addressed it, his daughter would have to testify and add to the weight of the evidence against him. As Barbara was cocked like a shotgun and raring to get on the stand and back up everything Paul said. Now, Mr. Carroll offered an alibi, of course, for the night of the murder of Dr. Littlefield, but he couldn't back it up when it came down to rubber meeting the road. Then it was alleged that he tried to go out and buy one, which got him accused of trying to bribe a witness. Another witness reported seeing him at the scene, dragging the body of Doc Littlefield out, stuffing it in the trunk, shoving Paul out in the car, and both of them screaming off toward Doc's house. In the end, the jury was persuaded that Mr. Carroll was guilty, and he too went to prison for life. Now, the both, both of them were sitting in the big house for the same crime. No, they didn't let Paul out because they'd convicted him. Apparently, they figured both two different stories. Uh, well, I guess they probably, both of them did it of their own accord some way or whatever, but they didn't let either one of them out. There they sit for the next 10 years with both of them screaming through the cell bars that they were innocent. And then in 1950, believe it or not, Frank would finally win his release and the legislature would order the attorney general to reinvestigate the whole case. They said that something just didn't add up and the attorney general needed to find out what the heck it was. At this point, prosecutors couldn't charge Mr. Carroll with an incest, nor could a court retry him for murder of Dr. Littlefield, but the court could retry either one of them, <clears throat> him or Paul, for the death of Lydia Littlefield, a crime that neither had been accused of so far. In the end, the last investigation published in 1952 found reasonable doubt as to Frank Carroll's guilt. The investigation came to the conclusion that the, he shouldn't face additional charges. Frank uh, traipsed right out the front door of the court and disappeared. Now, Paul, well, he would finally win his freedom on parole for good behavior, that is. He didn't get any kind of reprieve any other way. <clears throat> to this day, nobody really knows exactly what in the heck happened two men went down for it but who knows which one if either one of them actually did it i mean being that the good doctor was a morphine addict would certainly add an element of possibility that he might have rubbed somebody up his supply chain the wrong way 
the world may never know now. All I know, folks, is you can't make this stuff up. Now, I hope you liked the show today. If you did, please rate and review the podcast wherever you listen. That helps us so much. And don't forget to follow and get notified when a new episode drops. Come on over to Facebook group Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast where we talk Appalachian or about anything else you want to bring up. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder Mystery or Legend, and I'll see you then.